and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. My name is Bill Words, as always, and you have Billy Joel with his song Pressure fading out in the background. This is the episode 107 on March 16, 2023, and my guest this week is Matthias Bauer. He's a German economist and director at the European Center for International Political Economy, ESIP. He works on EU and global trade policy with a focus on digital and technology policymaking. And we're talking about TTIP, the free trade agreement between the EU and the United States, which failed in the 2010s. But now let's talk about whether the, um, this uh, trade agreement might get a new chance. So you'll hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, my colleague Luca Bertoletti joins us to talk about the end of the internal combustion engine as Austria and Germany are ramping up opposition. And also France wants to regulate social media influencers. Let's talk about what that means. So let's get started with this story first. This is your active reporting. Uh, France to regulate social media influences. The French government is set to present a plan to better regulate the commercial work of social media influences to ensure they, as well as the consumers of their content, are better protected, Economy Minister Bruno Le Maire told France Info on Monday. The global social media influencer market is estimated to be worth over 15.3 billion euros in 2022. In France, influencer marketing is one of the most effective forms of promotion for French brands, with 68% using influencers, particularly on Instagram, to push their products. And then the article continues by explaining that uh, the uh, French minister of the economy, Bruno Le Maire, says that it's a bit of the Wild West right now in the uh, branding market with influencers on social media uh, representing um, brands, sometimes not disclosing that representation and also uh, pitching products to minors that should not be pitched to them. And so there is a call for regulation. The, the government does say that they want to strike the right balance. According to an external 2022 study requested by the European Parliament's IMCO committee, which is the committee uh, also for consumer rights, consumers engage with influencers voluntarily but are simultaneously exposed to advertising that relies on the relationship between the consumer and the influencer, which raises concerns about the protection of consumers. So obviously this is a complicated issue because we have seen examples of fraudulent products being advertised by influencers. Obviously, just because you saw something from an influencer, just the same way that you might have seen an ad for one of the major banks that is struggling right now, uh, that doesn't exempt you from uh, any type of uh, responsibility to look up some of these products yourself. Um, if we ultimately say, well, any product that can cause you harm should also not be allowed to be advertised. I'm not quite sure how much advertising would be left. And I think it's a bit hypocritical to, um, to, to demand that level of scrutiny. At the same time, I do understand that uh, media outlets, uh, newspapers and TV stations have to do a lot of due diligence and they might think it's unfair uh, that influencers get away with a lack of scrutiny. But ultimately, the influencers shift happens on one hand because that's where the media attention shifts but also because it's a loophole of getting around a lot of the other regulations and if influencers um, get regulated I think there will be new loopholes opening up 
ultimately, there's only so much you can prevent with regulation. And also the question would even be, if an influencer on YouTube pitches a cryptocurrency that ends up losing a lot of money to the people who bought into it, well, then do we make the influencer responsible for that? And to what extent can they be held financially liable for that recommendation? I mean, we've seen celebrities on TV pitch products that didn't turn out to be uh, that great of an idea. So the question is essentially, how will that be put into law? On the transparency question, I think it's, uh, it's, it's rather futile because it's quite rare um, that it's not obvious to the consumer that a product is being pitched. And I also have to say, I mean, if you watch a James Bond movie and you see a Heineken bottle being flashed, I don't think it's on MGM to have a pop-up tell us that this was sponsored by Heineken. I think it's pretty obvious to consumers and it's part of how a movie is funded. And so it shouldn't be any different for influencers. I think it's a bit unfair to create a bit of a double standard there. Um, so I, and, and by the way, most influencers do announce their sponsorship, sponsorship deals because they're proud of them and they want to attract more of these. Um, so ultimately I, I think it's going to be quite interesting to see what the French government is going to come up with. And, um, if other countries are going to try and replicate similar, similar rules there, um, because I can be swayed that there's a case for some type of regulation here. Um, I just really want to see what they come up with in Paris. Next up, we have my colleague Luca Bertoletti joining us on the Consumer Podcast to tell us more about the battle over the internal combustion engine. A ban by 2035 for petrol and diesel engines was already approved by the European Commission and the European Parliament. The European Council, which represents the member states, seems to be now embroiled in a battle which I didn't anticipate happening at this point. Uh, but let's see what Luca has to say. Luca, the European Union is trying to ban the uh, use of the internal combustion engine. That means that technically, that is the plan, by 2035, no more petrol and diesel new sales um, of, of motor vehicles. Um, but there seems to be some pushback, and I wanted to get a sense from you um, why this is happening now. Because we talked on the podcast uh, in the past, in, in previous episodes about how the Commission uh, released this proposal, the European Parliament approved the proposal, and now some of the member states are pushing back. Why is that? Well, that's actually a very good question. And I think the real reason is finally the member states noticed that something was wrong in this proposal. Uh, on the opposite of the America Inflation Reduction Act, and whatever we think about the American um, Inflation Reduction Act, what the Commission proposed is basically not even to have an industrial strategy on this. It's actually just ban and let people decide by themselves and oblige them actually to buy just one type of cars from 2035 creating not just problems for consumers, but actually a lot of problems from the entire industry per se. I mean, coming from Italy, but I think Luxembourg and Germany, especially Germany, Italy, Poland, Slovakia, have a very strong automotive sector. And in 10 years, 12 years, completely reshuffle the, the, the supply chain 
it's almost impossible. So you don't have just a problem of consumer choice. So that there is no anymore uh, choice for consumers because we cannot decide to buy a fully electric and hybrid or a, a fuel based or uh, endothermic car, but actually also a problem of work for people and actually a, a real issue for the entire industry because most of the companies that right now are producing part and they are small businesses, they are not really big company. I mean, if we think about the big automotive company, uh, uh, um, current is called Stellantis, so former PSA and uh, Fiat Chrysler Automotive, uh, Renault, all of the Germans, BMW, etc. Uh, we cannot think that we actually are able to, I mean, we have a huge supply chain and we cannot change all of them. So we probably will reshuffle where to take the, uh, the parts. And so what this company will do, the small businesses that are doing the, the parts for the engine right now, they probably will close, leaving a lot of families on the street. Yeah, there seems to be an, uh, an, a quite important industrial aspect to this. Uh, my home country, Luxembourg and France, are on the side of countries that do want to go through with the ban in 2035. Uh, Germany has now uh, been joined by Austria and Italy as well. Um, where it's the entire uh, manufacturing perspective, how feasible is this? But they're not just saying no, they're also saying that uh, e-fuels are a good alternative. They're essentially proposing an alternative here. How likely do you think uh, is it that those countries can find a coalition to oppose the ban? Well, right now the ban is completely opposed because this country represents more than 40%, especially Italy and Germany together, more than 40% of the European population. So the the full the ban cannot pass at the council, and that's why France is actually saying that Italy and Germany are boycotting the deal. Uh, so to answer your question, two things. First, it's very interesting that France currently is proposing is in favor of this ban uh, because it doesn't really make much sense because the they have a very strong automotive sector and they actually, the state is even owning partially part of both Renault and Stellantis. So it's actually very interesting to see that uh, this is happening in France. And I think they did not think through because neither Stellantis, neither uh, Renault are actually uh, stronger in the uh, electric cars. Uh, part so I don't recall any full electric cars from Stellantis right now if not Cinquecento but it's not a car that you sell uh, outside the cities so this actually is a problem for France themselves and probably the government will eventually change their mind and about the idea of the e-fuel actually it's a good compromise I mean we need to think that what most of the current uh, fuel are actually e-fuel already. So uh, I think at least uh, most of the member states that I know, they don't sell any more uh, not e-fuel uh, uh, gasoline, uh, if not for trucks. So, um, and obviously there is also all of the part of the GNL, so the... Um, gas, what you call gas, basically, that you can pump into and uh, um, 
and you can pump into the car, that's the commission and the proposal from the commission, unfortunately from the parliament, completely cut off. So not only you will not have any more uh, fuel-based engine, but also you will not have any more GNL, you will not any more LPG. So anything that could be green, you will not anymore. What the proposal from, France, from Germany and Italy right now says is like, okay, let's say that very polluting cars um, engine, we are gonna cut them off. So Euro 6, Euro 5, which are not very polluting, but we take them away. We do it Euro 7, which is just, if you will, um, GNL LPG, that's all. I mean, that's a great idea. And it's very weird again, because most, some big producer of GNL and LPG are actually French, but France is actually opposing this proposal. I think more is more, and I think you and I discussed in private quite a lot, is more a, a game of who is vetoing what than something else. Well, that's as about, about as much time as we have. We'll, we'll talk about this again because it seems to be quite a political battle that's definitely interesting many of the newspapers uh, to be writing about. There's different coalitions that will be uh, trying to find a compromise uh, as we go along. Uh, in any case, Luca, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, Bill. Talk soon. And last but not least, we have the guest of the week, Matthias Bauer, a German economist and director at the European Center for International Political Economy, ESIP. He works on EU and global trade policy with a focus on digital and technology policymaking. We're talking about TTIP, the free trade agreement uh, between the European Union and the United States that failed about 10 years ago. TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, if I get the acronym exactly right, but you might correct me. TTIP um, failed uh, in, uh, in the early 2010s. And uh, the reason for that is there's a multitude of reasons why it failed. And I wanted to first, before we talk about the future of transatlantic trade, I wanted to first get in and, and remind the audience um, why TTIP didn't happen. Can you run us through the, the different reasons that this agreement never came to fruition? Yeah, thanks, Bill. The TTIP uh, was supposed to be a very big uh, so-called deep and comprehensive trade agreement to be negotiated and actually um, finalized and ratified by the United States and the European Union. And I think, yeah, negotiations started in the early 2010s uh, based on previous discussions and uh, for, for negotiation that we've seen between uh, the EU and the US, like the um, uh, TAFTA, the Transatlantic Free uh, Trade uh, Agreement uh, framework. Um, then there was a previous initiative uh, calling for a Transatlantic Zero Agreement uh, where both jurisdictions were supposed to uh, decrease their import tariffs down to zero for trade between the US and the EU. Uh, but all of these kind of initiatives, they failed. They did not really materialize in something really substantial that could help, um, for example, political um, integration between the uh, two jurisdictions uh, uh, or contribute to um, progressing economic integration. But then all of a sudden TTIP uh, popped up and the ambitions were pretty high. Uh, the EU and the US they did not only focus on tariff elimination, they also wanted to touch upon 
regulatory issues, so policies that impact their own uh, markets, but also policies that impact um, um, trade and investment by U.S. companies in the EU and uh, vice versa. And it was uh, in many ways uh, um, contentious um, because many people, policymakers, uh, lobby groups, and also a very a large number of um, what I would call left-leaning activists, they were concerned about how the TTIP would impact on countries' right to regulate. So would countries still be able to regulate for the sake of environmental protection, to protection of workers uh, or consumer protection in general? Um, and these concerns were partly merited, but to a large extent exaggerated. And they actually led to a huge campaign network uh, calling on policymakers to stop TTIP negotiations, to, um, to basically um, um, uh, get, get rid of uh, not only the contentious parts of the agreement, but to entirely uh, stop this project. Um, Interestingly, I did a longer uh, study on the major actors of the campaign network, their demands, and where the money for their campaigns is coming from. And it turned out that the European campaign network um, calling to stop TTIP was, uh, to a large extent, funded by the European Commission, uh, back then the DG for, uh, for development cooperation, but also national member states ministries funneling millions of euros to anti-TTIP uh, NGOs to set up protests in the internet and on European streets. So that contributed to a very hostile um, public opinion about TDP in general. Uh, many policymakers and also officials uh, distanced themselves from the negotiations. So um, the political appetite at the end of the day was not as strong as it was at the beginning of the negotiations. Um, the negotiations would, uh, the, they were uh, put in uh, the freezer, as officials used to say, when the Trump administration uh, kicked in. Um, but um, there have been a few disputes um, between the EU and the US in, in the subsequent years, uh, including uh, the uh, dispute over the Trump administration announcing that they um, uh, that they do not want to be a member of the Paris Agreement anymore, and this caused the, the EU to uh, step out of the negotiations. So it's not in the freezer anymore, it's actually that. Yeah, I, when you when you mentioned it being in the freezer, I think we would we probably forgot it in the freezer and it's died subsequently, um, unfortunately. But and, and it seems now that we're in a position where I mean, the Trump administration um, is not there anymore. We don't have that sort of pinging back and forth ping pong on tariffs on beer and Levi's jeans and Harley Davidson, which we had for a couple of months. And it seemed all a bit silly. We're now back with an administration that I think um, many European governments seem to like on a political level more. So the question is, 
Um, does this give us opportunities? It seems right now that the EU tries to find a solution with the American uh, with the Americans over this Inflation Reduction Act and the subsidies that are given to um, different things, including electric vehicle uh, tax credits, which they say favor the American uh, car industry over the European car manufacturers. So all of this has led us to new win win sort of a new era of trade disputes. Um, does that make some people hungrier or regret that something like TTIP didn't happen? Would would TTIP have prevented this entire conversation over tariffs and subsidies? Um, yes. Yeah, so first of all, uh, we uh, are now witnessing an, uh, a little debate uh, in some strands of the European Commission and in some uh, member states uh, like Germany um, about whether it would be a good idea to relaunch negotiations for a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with the US. Um, but we haven't seen these ambitions for a very long time. And um, the reason for why these uh, appetites are popping up again is that, as you just mentioned, the Biden administration, um, the con con U.S. Congress uh, ratified the Inflation Reduction Act, and in this act, we see that um, subsidies by the U.S. government are granted for products um, that are either exclusively manufactured in the United States or, uh, uh, to some extent, 100% or to some extent a certain share of the, the input for these products is coming from countries that have a free trade agreement with the United States. And this is basically Canada and Mexico. Um, and um, some policymakers in Germany and also the new free commission are now arguing, well, if we uh, would have uh, had a trade agreement like TTIP in place, we would not have the problems with the subsidies that um, have been uh, designed and enacted uh, in the U in the US uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, well, this is of course um, true, uh, or it, it, may, it may be true, maybe um, the EU uh, would not be treated discriminatory in the um, US Inflation Reduction Act, but I think there is much more that needs to be uh, considered in this debate. Um, so first of all, we uh, see globally that um, governments are uh, uh, increasingly looking inward when they design domestic regulatory policies, but also trade policies. They increasingly um, uh, refer to protectionist or what I would call discriminatory policies that grant privileges to the domestic industry, often large domestic incumbents, and explicitly by design discriminate against foreigners. Um, and this is true for many policies that uh, were considered or uh, implemented in the EU uh, in the last, let's say, two years, also under this new EU strategic autonomy paradigm. Think, for example, of uh, gatekeeper regulations where the regulation to uh, or for, uh, on digital services that are supplied by a lot of technology companies uh, is based on thresholds for uh, revenues, uh, which at the end of the day leads to the result that uh, 
I think uh, 20 out of 32 uh, companies that are um, affected by the regulation are US-based companies. The same is true for digital services taxes, which did not um, find the way find their way in the overall EU key, but they are still uh, uh, imposed by some EU member states based on an EU template that uh, popped up uh, three or four years ago. Um, and uh, we see similar ambitions uh, by the EU to squeeze out foreign companies from um, technology-intensive uh, industries, uh, primarily data-intensive industries. Um, and this, of course, uh, has a negative impact on um, the political affairs between the two jurisdictions, the EU and the US. Uh, but all of this happened uh, after the EU and the US Biden administration agreed to set up what they call the Trade and Technology Council, TTC, um, which is um, a platform for discussion, rather uh, a template for negotiation of a large-scale large trade agreement. And I think this one, the, the Transatlantic Trade Technology Council, it was launched two, two and a half years ago, if I remember correctly. And at the time of the launch, many observers, they were already calling for a new TTIP uh, based on the TTC negotiations. Um, but when we look at the TTC negotiations, we, we don't see much uh, progress um, in the areas that were intended to be covered, like increasing regulatory uh, cooperation across industries, increased cooperation when it comes to investment facilitation and investment protection, uh, increased cooperation when it comes to um, the development and adoption of new technologies, where we saw some progress was on export controls and the treatment of dual-use goods, primarily driven by you know the the war of aggression uh, by Russia against Ukraine, right? So more driven by external factors rather than an intrinsic motivation to come to a conclusion and uh, have a formal agreement that. Uh, policy makes and future governments um, can refer to and also stick to. So, because you mentioned, and I think the external factors are interesting to bring up here, um, especially because we, I, I have about two minutes left on the clock here, and I wanted to ask you this, which is, um, do you think these external factors can give a bit of a push to everyone sitting on the table? We have a lot of conversations right now about friend shoring um, our trade policy and our engagement with the world. Um, the European Union and the United States, they're allies. They should work together. So um, does the war in Ukraine um, motivate more to, to make these things happen? Can those kind of things be fast-tracked? Are you optimistic or pessimistic on that point? I would be very pessimistic. Um, we've seen that it could be a facilitator for policies that, you know, as I mentioned, um, uh, target uh, sensitive exports, dual-use um, technologies. There is discussion going on about sanctioning uh, not only Russia, but, but also China uh, for several reasons, several good reasons. 
But when it comes to plain vanilla industrial and trade policy, um, external um, factors, they are not going to be a game changer at any time soon. That I don't think the appetite in both jurisdiction, uh, both jurisdictions for industrial policymaking that in a way discriminates against foreign companies, irrespective of wherever they are from the EU, the US or other parts of the world is actually very, very high in these jurisdictions. And apart from that, I'm actually uh, more in favor of a broader coalition of like governments working together Supposed to be addressed by the TTIP, supposed to be addressed by the recent TTC. Um, and we at ESA, we were once thinking about something like NATO for trade and um, technology um, that would be defensive, first of all, with regard to protecting an open and um, non discriminatory economic order. And it would be progressive in a way uh, by encouraging international cooperation uh, and competition. Uh, and the free exchange of ideas, data, and innovation among a much broader group of like-minded countries. You can think of the larger group of G20 countries, the larger group of OECD countries, ex-authoritarian countries, of course. Uh, but it should not be considered, you know, like a NATO of at the maximum 20, uh, 30 or 32 members. It should be an open group of, of like-minded uh, countries engaging with each other, including, for example, developing an emerging market uh, um, countries that share, you know, strong political appetite for maintaining sound fundamental human rights and democratic values. And this is uh, this is what we would consider a more ideal outcome um, to push political and also economic integration among a large, um, large broader group. Well, I do like the sound of that. In any case, thanks so much, Matthias Bauer, for your insights. Um, and uh, the listeners can find more on the website of ESIP and can learn more about uh, your work uh, at the European Center for International Political Economy. See, I can actually do figure out the acronyms there. So thank you so much for coming on the Consumer Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Matthias Bauer on Twitter at MattBauerEcon and follow Esipe as well at Esipe, the way it's said. You can also see that in the description of this episode. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, we do have a Telegram channel as well and you can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerChoiceC. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, and I'll see you Thursday. You have